On this week's 51%, we wrap our series speaking with women religious leaders and scholars. Dr. Haifa Yunus discusses her work at the Jana Institute, an Islamic school for women. Islam is a very spiritual religion. Many people don't know that, unfortunately. Even Muslims don't know that. There's a lot of spirituality and personal connection. And Dr. Amina Darwish challenges the perception of Muslim women in America, coming up on 51%. I was standing around like one of those girls I had seen in a movie. The whole world was a movie back then. I had my sunglasses on, I wanted to be seen without seeing Shiloh Alita. I wasn't really in it. I didn't really get it. You're listening to 51%, a WAMC production dedicated to women's issues and experiences. Thanks for joining us. I'm Jesse King. This week, we're wrapping our series speaking with women religious leaders and scholars. By now, at part four, we've spoken to women from various backgrounds about their beliefs. And my hope in doing this, as someone who doesn't know much about religion, was to hear directly from women about how they worship, why they do it, and what they see as the greatest challenges in their faiths. Because while a lot of today's mainstream religions are traditionally male-led, women are increasingly stepping up to the plate. Today, we're wrapping the series by speaking with three well-versed Muslim women. Our first guest is Dr. Haifa Yunus, the founder and chairman of the Jana Institute in St. Louis, Missouri. She's a board-certified obstetrician and gynecologist with roots in Iraq, and she says she started the Jana Institute in 2013 to offer an Islamic education for women by women. She always wanted to dive deeper into her faith, and before starting the Institute, she went on her own journey in search of knowledge, a mission that proved somewhat difficult in the U.S. at the time. After trying remote learning methods, she packed up her life and moved to Saudi Arabia, where she graduated from the Mecca Institute of Islamic Studies. There, actually where I met the women scholars. Before that, I have not. Maybe I've read about them and before, but there I definitely met. I learned 90% from women scholars, really deep knowledge. And the beauty when you learn from a woman, and this is not because of gender, it's just because, number one, as a woman, you know she goes through what you are going through. It's, it's closer. So it doesn't mean the man doesn't do it, but it's just something little bit. I didn't know this till I felt it, till I tried it. And Jannah Institute, what we offer, there is um, a broad spectrum because there's so many things you can learn about Islam. So we divided it into the main two things is the holy book itself. And then we call it Islamic study. So the holy book is people wants to learn how to read. Remember, the holy book, the Quran is in Arabic. Majority of the women lives in the West don't speak Arabic and they don't know how to read. So we offer them courses from the basics, from like literally the alphabet to you become an expert in reading. Then some knows how to read, but they want to memorize. It's a huge virtue to memorize. So we offer that too. Then we offered, you want to read, but you want to read perfect. So you study academically. How do you read it? There's rules. It's a whole subject. That's one. And then the other, which is much more needed if you want to do, is basically the whole, what does Islam say? What does Islam teaches? How can I practice my religion living in the West in 2022 as a professional woman, as a mother, as both? And this is what we offer. We started um, in 2017 giving courses, six weeks, eight weeks course, once a week or twice a week. And then uh, last year in March, we called it Year of Knowledge. 
what every Muslim woman should learn about Islam. And we designed it in a way that it is the traditional books and the traditional sciences, but in a practical way, and that the ordinary woman, and the goal is not to graduate scholars. I told the woman from day one. The goal is you learn your religion and how you apply it in your daily life. So what are some of the ways that students are taking those lessons into their daily lives? Whenever we are learning, the first question comes in, how you apply it. So when we finished our first semester, we had the final exam, and there are all the questions and quizzes and everything. But at the end, there was a question. And I told the students, this is not going to be marked. And the question was, what did this subject change in your life? And how did you apply it in your daily life? So, for example, when we were teaching the woman about prayers, how you pray, not supplication, how you perform, we call it salah in Islam. And then we, we taught them all of it, the connection to God and everything. So what they wrote was amazing. Like, I always used to look at it as it's a duty, I have to do it. I never thought of it as it is a connection with my creator. And now I take my time to do it. The science of the Quran, which is very academic, and it's not easy. And they said, although it was, and this is the majority of the students. I, even I was crying as I was reviewing this for the science of the Quran. They said, although it is challenging and a lot of new information, but it may change the way I look to the book itself. And I changed the way that how I should connect with this book and how I am as a woman living in this day and age. How do I apply it? How do I learn it and how do I teach it to my children and apply it in my home? So basically, it's a practical theory, but we bring it to practice always. So and I, this is the usual questions I ask the students during the class. Tell me how you will apply this today in your, in your life. And you went to school to memorize the Quran, correct? Yes. Yeah. We say alhamdulillah, all gratefulness, all gratitude actually to God. Yes, definitely. What was that like? How do you break up such a large text to put it down to memory? There's two ways of doing it. The younger you are, the better, because your brain is not busy yet. So usually, either you do it yourself, a lot of people does it, takes much longer, or you do it with a teacher one-to-one, or the best way where everyone will advise you is you do it with to go to school, and usually there are small classes, eight or nine in the class, and you all memorize the same. And the teacher is usually very expert. Of course, she memorized. And so usually the way they do it, to make it easy, it's 30 parts, three zero. So they usually divide it over three years. Every year you memorize 10 parts. The irony, if you want to use the word, and the challenge is that you can forget it very easily. So when you memorize, you have to keep reviewing. So you build up. When you memorize the first 10 chapters, most probably you forgot what is the first unless you keep reviewing. So they give you a whole organized way where you, that's how much we call it a new memorization, a review of a recent memorization and review of an old memorization. And you get tested and tested and tested. So you sit in front of the teacher and she, you don't have the book. She opens it, any page. And then she said, read from the following. All right. Well, just personally, what does worship look like to you? To me, and I have seen it also as we are teaching, that has the most impact is when you start learning about your creator. Because whatever we say, and you say, yeah, I know, I know, I know. But when you start studying in detail, so we believe in a creed, 
that he is the only creator and the prophet peace be upon him is the messenger and then when you look at who is he that's the detail like we spend 13 weeks studying who is he for example when you when you read and this is really had an impact on me before the students is when uh, one of the sayings says he created us and he doesn't need us and he give us constantly and never run out, if you want to use this word, of continuous giving. You, and I always tell the students, take a break. Just think about this. Close your eyes and see who is he. So when you want something, why do you call, go and ask from people? Why don't you go and ask from the source? And the source will make the subcontractors, if you want to use the word, do it. So the, the, the most important to me personally as a woman is this connection is this personal connection anywhere i want to go i don't need anybody i just sit and i talk to him and if you know his words the holy book it's even better because now you're talking to him with his own words spirit islam is a very spiritual religion many people don't know that unfortunately even muslims don't know that there's a lot of spirituality and personal connection and you don't get the peace that we are supposed to get from religion unless you have this. One thing I've been asking my guests is, like, do you see any, like, opportunities or obstacles in your religion currently? I would call them both because the obstacle is, I will call it, one of the most misunderstood religion because of many reasons. You probably know working in the media. But this obstacle is the opportunity. This is how I look at it. Because when people ask me, for example, now you're seeing me, I cover my hair, right? So people will ask me about this. Well, this is an opportunity. I can look at it as an obstacle. Well, they, they have labeled me. They, no, I look at it as an opportunity to explain to people what is my religion. And since I am doing it and I am convinced and I didn't do it for any other reason than to please him, God, then this is the opportunity. And what I have seen, and as I, we discussed earlier, I've been a professional woman 40 years, studied all in the Western world. I have always had people, when they ask me, first thing I say to myself, they don't know. There is no other reason they are asking. And this is the opportunity. And this is what I teach also. In Jannah Institute, I always tell the woman, when you are in that grocery shop, this is your opportunity to practice what you are learning. One of the teachings of the prophet is don't get upset, don't get angry. So you go to the grocery shop and the person, you know, the cashier is busy or made a mistake. Normally, because we are so much used to everything goes our way, we get upset. No, remember what you learned and apply it. And especially as a Muslim woman, and that's the opportunity. Lastly, one of the other things I'm also asking people is if you have either a favorite religious message or a story or a person from the Quran that you'd like to share. Oh, I have a lot of stories. <laughs> My friends knows that. But one story is not about me, but happened. I was there and I'm talking to you about the connection because I saw the connection on the spot. This is in the holy month of Ramadan. The last 10 days of Ramadan is a very highly spiritual month, uh, all the month, but the last 10 days when many people you go for seclusion we call it itikaf where you go alone and it's really highly recommended to do it in the mosque so here i am this is years ago with another woman who i don't know and we were in the mosque in the holy mosque in mecca which is so crowded 
just see you're talking about millions, not one or two. And then you are up all night praying, and in between they give you a break. But if you want to leave the mosque, go out and eat and come back, you will miss the prayers. So whatever food you have, so usually it's a sandwich, cheese sandwich, maybe a piece of food. And this is for 10 days. So this was the night, maybe the 28th or the 29th, so at the end. And this woman, young woman at that time, in her 20s, you know the giving, generous person? Anybody wants anything, I was watching her for 10 days, she gives it. So she came to me at 3 a.m. in the morning, we were sitting together, exhausted. And she looked at me and she said, in her own slang language, I am dying for a piece of meat. And I looked at her and I was like, where are we going to get meat? We're in the mosque with these millions. Not even five minutes. A woman comes in, sit in front of us with a container. She opens the container, and guess what's in the container? Meat, cooked meat in tomato sauce. Looked at us. We don't know this woman. She said, by God, this was cooked at home, and you're all going to eat. And I looked at her. I was like, what connection you have that you only wanted food, and he gave it to you within five minutes? Amazing. Amazing. But to have the connection, you have to sacrifice. You have to work for him and give for him, and do what he wants from you. And amazing that what you get back. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. That was all the questions that I had for you off the top of my head. But is there anything that I'm missing that you'd like me to know or that you'd like our listeners to know? Yes, I would. Number one, thank you so much again. And thanks for everyone who's listening to me. I would ask everybody who's listening to us is don't judge people. Learn. Ask. And ask with a smile. And believe me, everybody will be more than happy. But don't judge anybody just because they look different, especially women. I'm talking about women. Just because they look different or maybe they have an accent. But believe me, we all, and this is what we believe in Islam, we all were created from dust and we all going to go back to dust. One thing we've seen over the course of these episodes is how many people worship through service. And our next guest, Uzma Popal, is no exception. Popal has long been a member of the Al Hidayah Center in Latham, New York. And since 2017, she's been the director of the center's Muslim Soup Kitchen Project. The charity, which helps families across the capital region, says it's served roughly 42,000 meals since 2014. And the projects keep coming. I sat down with Popal to learn more. So I actually grew up here. I came to America when I was nine years old. I had heard about Muslim Soup Kitchen Project uh, a while ago, and at that time I was mother of two, and my kids were around 10, 11, and I really wanted them to learn about, to give to the needy and to help others because, you know, alhamdulillah, thank God, that we have a lot that he has blessed us with, but I wanted my children to be able to be grateful and to give back in our faith, like, Charity is one of our pillars. We can't even really call ourselves Muslims if we don't give in charity. And when this MSKP came into my lap, I knew that this is something I really wanted to do. Tell me a little bit about what the project does. How often are, like, is it like on a monthly basis or a weekly basis? And how many centers do you guys operate? Um, So 
MSKP, Muslim Soup Kitchen Project, has many programs underneath its umbrella. And some of those are that we serve monthly soup kitchens, uh, monthly meals to local shelters in Synecdoche, Albany, and Troy. Uh, We serve about 300 to 500 meals. On top of that, once a year, we do the National Soup Kitchen Day, in which we serve over 1,200 meals just locally, and we extend to multiple shelters in Albany and all these areas. There's also monthly drives that we do. So let's say maybe in winter we do coats and socks and hats and stuff like that. Uh, You know, when school starts around August, we do school supplies, and then we do fresh vegetables and fruits drive, things like that. Um, So we do that every month. Uh, We have a donation center that we collect those drives, and then we distribute it to local refugees, local families in need. In our holidays, we have Eid al-Adha and Eid al-Fitr. So Eid al-Adha, one of our holidays, is where we have meat. We know we sacrifice meat, and we actually donated over 1,500 pounds of meat to local families in need. These are just a few of the things that MSKP does along with, you know, we have the visiting the sick and the elderly that we do. That's another thing in our religion is that we look out for our elders. You know, just the idea of putting your parents or somebody into the nursing home, it's like a foreign thought for us. I know it's not, it can't be helped sometimes because people have to work. We understand that, you know, just because you put your parent in a nursing home doesn't mean you don't love them. Of course, you know, everybody loves their parents. But in our culture, it's more of, you know, they took care of you, now we have to take care of them. So in the community, if there's somebody that doesn't have a family member or, you know, they're alone, it's a community's job. It's their right upon us that we have to check on them. Uh, the people that you're helping in these projects, like, what are the things that you often see them struggling with? What are some of the things that you're just seeing out there in the community that could help in that regard? Yeah, there's, um, especially with COVID right now, you know, a lot of people, some people have temporarily lost their jobs. And then everything is so expensive these days, even food, everything is rising that even people that may have lived normally without feeling the pain of all this, they are starting to feel that. And we also have, like, the refugee group that has come, and we work closely with USCRI. When the refugees come, they contact us, and we try to help them get them resettled as much as possible and to provide. uh, So for the Muslim refugees that come, um, some of the things that we provide for them, like welcome packages, may have their prayer rugs as well as the Quran, which they don't have. Um, not only that, but before they can find permanent housing or apartments, USARA finds it for them. So in that meantime, um, they are in a hotel and they have no money. They don't have food stamps or anything like that. In order to help them with that, we actually uh, provide lunches. You mentioned that there are different things that you guys are looking for at different times of the year. Uh, what are some ways that people can help out with the Soup Kitchen Project right now? Yeah, um, one thing that we're always in need of obviously you know volunteers and they can people can go to our website they can email mskp at al-hidaya.org um, so they can even email us and say hey we want to volunteer and we can get them started and then i like to see what the volunteers what they're into what they like to do and then we f- try to find the right spot for them another way people can donate is they can donate toiletries or cleaning supplies because these are the type of things that food stamps doesn't cover 
but they're expensive. What was it that maybe made wanted you get more involved with your faith, or has this always been a part of your life? Oh yeah, no, definitely. Um, that's like the main reason I'm doing this and being part of this is because of my faith. We have the Quran, the holy book, and after that we have hadith. A hadith is all the sunnah, which is the sayings of the prophet and the things he did. So it'll say give charity, but then the hadith will tell us how to give charity and who to give to charity. And one thing that always stands out to me is it says one cannot be a Muslim unless they want for their brothers what they have for themselves. So when you think about that, how can I eat food and be okay with it knowing that you know, my neighbor or somebody I know is starving and going hungry. And then another thing that I really like is when it comes to charity, it says charity like begins at home. So I can't go and help the community when my own children are starving. You know, that just doesn't make sense. So it's kind of like a, I see it as a circle and it grows. It's all about intentions. So if we do something, it depends what your intention is. If I, like, for example, if I said, like your shirt. <laughs> I mean, if I said it in a cynical, in a wrong way where it hurts your feelings, yeah, I said, I like your shirt. But, I mean, am I going to get a good deed or a bad deed? You know, obviously it's a bad deed because the intention, what was the intention? So if I say, I know I said that, <laughs> you know, I like your shirt, <laughs> which I do, by the way. <laughs> um, so if I say, I get a good deed for that. You know, if I sit down and I watch a movie with my family, and I did it with the intention that, you know what, I want to spend time with my family, and it's something that I'm watching that's good, and, you know, I get a good deed for it, and, and I don't know too much about um, too many other fates and everything, but in one day, every action, everything that I could do, I could get a reward for it. National Muslim Soup Kitchen Day is scheduled for May 28th with participating soup kitchens across the U.S. For additional info on donations and more about the charity, check them out at al-hidayah, that's H-I-D-A-Y-A dot org. Our last guest today has actually already been mentioned on this program before. Dr. Amina Darwish is a close friend of last week's guest, Sangeeta Kausik, and she does a lot of work as a spiritual advisor and the Associate Dean for Religious and Spiritual Life at Stanford University. She originally got her doctorate in chemical engineering before switching career paths and choosing to pursue Islamic scholarship. Unlike some of our guests, she says her relationship with her religion didn't really blossom from the start, but it came through introspective reflection. I don't know if I should call them spiritual crises because they ended up in like spiritual awakenings. But I, when I was 16, I decided I'm like, you know, this whole praying five times a day thing is a lot of work. I'm either going to do it for me or I'm not going to do it at all. And I started reading the Quran mostly to like argue with my mom. <laughs> so that if I was like, be like, oh, I'm not going to pray anymore. Like I could rebut what she was saying based on this text that I was like, this is it. And I remember reading it for the first time. And by the end of it, I was like, shoot, I think I'm still Muslim. <laughs> I think I have to keep praying. I think I should do this now. And I remember once going to a conference and it was a discussion on spirituality. And Imam Ghazali is like one of the most renowned Muslim mystics in Islamic history. 
and I remember like hearing his book it's called the alchemy of happiness and it was and I remember like just learning about it and I was like where has this been my whole life <laughs> like why but I still have my notes about like the spirit and the ego and and how your spirit existed before your body and it still remembers the presence of God and it's always yearning for it and it's always yearning for this like timeless existence that was actually the beginning of me trying to learn and study Islam more more seriously unfortunately there are a lot of idiots on the internet and when you research things online about Islam the junk that they say about women is ridiculous and every Muslim experience like I I, I grew up in a Muslim family like I I lived in Kuwait for a long time. I, I've, I've lived in Muslim societies that I knew what they were saying was just not true to the lived reality. And I also knew down in my heart, I'm like, I know God's not a misogynist. And there were so many women in the life of Prophet Muhammad that anytime someone's like, oh, women can't do this. I'm like, let me tell you about a woman in the life of Prophet Muhammad who did. There's a woman that goes to the Prophet, peace be upon him. And she asks him, she's like, why in this verse are men mentioned more than women? And my response, every time I present this, like, she, this woman was later widowed. Prophet Muhammad marries her later in her life. And then I'm like, if people ask who wants to marry the crazy feministy woman, that's like, what about this thing? Answers Prophet Muhammad and people who are actually following in his footsteps. So I like this woman. <laughs> and I'm, I don't know, so grateful for all of those examples of women in the life of Prophet Muhammad. And I feel like very few people know about them. Are there any other things that you feel people misunderstand about your faith? I mean, that seems to be the biggest one. I've been, I lived in different parts of the country. So I lived in Ohio and I remember like showing up to spaces where I'm the Muslim representative and someone's like, Islam oppresses women. And I'm like, my dude, they sent me. Like, what are you talking about? Like, I'm just so confused. And it, it it's odd because I feel like, especially well, as women, we're like the struggle of like claiming my space and claiming my expertise. And I'm standing in this space and I'm like, no, I'm the expert in this room about Islam. And you're not going to tell me what it is. We had a guest speaker. It was actually the first event I did at Stanford. Dr. Donna Austin is a professor at Rutgers University. She had a discussion on the women in Malcolm X's life. His sister, Ella Collins, was the one that got him transferred and advocated for him to get transferred to the prison that had the library. And that's how he learned how to read. He memorized a dictionary. And without his sister, he wouldn't have been there. And she talked about his sister, she talked about his mother, she talked about Dr. Betty Shabazz. Like we celebrate him and we forget to mention the women that made him who he is, that he couldn't have been that person without her. And this like unspoken emotional labor that a lot of the times women do. And she was talking about like loving someone that society has deemed unlovable is an act of resistance. And it's an act of beauty. And I, that really resonated with me. Because even in the story of Moses, and I think this is true in the Jewish, Christian, and Muslim scriptures, a lot of the women in his story are unnamed. And it talks about his sister. It talks about his mother. It talks about his adoptive mother. And you see all of these women, his wife, you see all of these women that healed him, carried him through his trauma and protected him and gave him the opportunities to become who he was. So then he can walk into the court of Pharaoh and be like, let me tell you about God, <laughs> like, even though you're trying to kill me, like... It's such a boss moment, but he couldn't have been there without the love these women gave him. I've been teaching the life of Prophet Muhammad for, for a number of years now. And a lot of the times the feedback I got from people was like, this is the first time I've heard these particular stories. I'm named after Prophet Muhammad's mom. So of course I'm gonna talk about his mom. <laughs> like I'm talking about his mom a lot. 
other times you're like, oh, this is here he was born. And I'm like, no, this is everything that was happening in his society when he was born. His father passed away when his mom was still pregnant. This pregnant widow is carrying all of this. And that's the beginning of his life. Tell me a little bit more about Muhammad's mother then, because I'm not aware of too much about her. Sadly, she passed away when he was six years old. He had so much trauma as a child. And even the Quran later addresses it and says, you were an orphan and we sent you people to love you. Because if you look at a tribal society, the most vulnerable person is the orphan. And there's so much celebrating that child, protecting that child, and not just protecting that child with like, here we give, we donate. No, people loved him. People took him in. And it's fascinating that like that was part of God helping him through his trauma. When he was much, much later in his life, he's, he's in his 60s. This is like, he's achieved this like success of like his message spreading everywhere. People are recognizing him for the leader that he is. And he stops by the place where his mother is buried. And he's just gone for a long time. And then they send someone to go find him. And they just find him standing right next to where his mother was buried, just crying, just missing her. She clearly gave him so much love and believed in him so much that he was able to carry it through the rest of his life knowing he was loved. That love is, is healing. It gives people resilience. And when we think, like I was talking to a student earlier today that's telling me about her fiance, she's like, it's getting really exciting because she's like, okay, I think I'm going to marry him. Like, I, I think this is like, she's getting to that point. And one of the conversations we had reflecting on the story of Moses, I'm like, if you marry him, do you think in 10 years that your prayers will be better? That they'll be deeper, they'll be more meaningful? And she's like, yeah, I think so. I'm like, then he is your spiritual partner. That's awesome. <laughs> For those who don't know, like, just let's go over some of the basic beliefs in Islam and the ways that you worship. Most basic belief is just the oneness of God. There's one God, he sends prophets to tell us about. I want to say himself just because English doesn't have a genderless singular. <laughs> Arabic does, which I'm grateful for. <laughs> Hua in Arabic is either male or undefined gender. I didn't know that. That's cool. Yeah. So like even just putting God, when, when you say he, it becomes so limiting. God by design is one and only God can be one because only God is perfect and unique in their oneness. All the rest of us need other people. What daily practice looks like, I mentioned the five daily prayers. They're based on the position of the sun. They're at different times, just spread out throughout your day. They're very small circuits. It's also a physical prayer. So you're in different physical positions. There's a point where your head is above your heart and you're, you're standing. There's a point where you're bowing and your heart and head are level. There's a point where your face is on the ground and your heart is above your head. And there's different things that you're saying in each of those positions. And it's it's very personal. You can do it in a group. And even if you are, it looks like, people standing in rows doing yoga together, which I think is hilarious. <laughs> in the same way that Muslims are talked about a lot, unfortunately, in the news in very negative light, very rarely is everyday Muslim life actually discussed. The most consistent thing that is said in the prayer is Allahu Akbar, God is greater. And it's by design, not like a complete sentence, because you can, in your own mind, like God is greater than whatever I was worried about before I started the prayer. God is greater than this. I can personalize it. I can make it my own experience. And unfortunately, a lot of Americans will hear the word Allahu Akbar and they're like, oh no, this is something bad. And I, that makes me sad. I say it like, I say it a lot. <laughs> Any practicing Muslim says it a lot. And it just, it feels so insulting 
that someone can commit an evil act, say it once, and somehow their once becomes more valuable than my hundred times a day, me and every other practicing Muslim. Overall, do you have any like religious stories or messages that you'd like to share? Uh, I know you've mentioned a couple of your favorite women already. Is there anything else that you'd like listeners to know? Um, so Prophet Muhammad's wife, Aisha, narrates the greatest number of narrations from him. Like he passed away and she, for the rest of her life, carried on his message. Up to a third of Islam came to us from this woman. And like such detailed things of like, this is the procedure he followed in his shower. <laughs> like, who would be able to tell us that besides his wife? And I just, anytime there's someone that is like insulting to Muslim women, I'm like, first of all, go talk to one. I promise we're forced to be reckoned with. <laughs> and two, a third of Islam came to us through a woman. Like we wouldn't know so much of our religion without her. And it's not like the other two thirds was all men. The other two thirds included both men and women. Muslim women have always been at the forefront of our faith where the, the first martyr was a woman, the first believer was a woman. Like there's so many firsts in Islam. Actually, the, my, one of my favorites, the oldest running degree granting university in the world is the one in Fas in Morocco. It was opened by a woman by the name of Fatima al-Fahriya. There was a moment where, well, he since got himself fired. The president of Harvard at some point was like, women are just not as good at math. And then he got himself fired and replaced by a woman, which was perfect poetic justice, which I really appreciate. <laughs> Thank you, whoever did that. But I remember when he said that and we were having a discussion at the mosque and I was like, no, no, this university was credited of introducing the Arabic numerals that we now use to Europe. So we all wouldn't do that the way that we do without this particular woman let alone every woman that has been like, I mean, women were at the beginning of like computer science and now our image of a computer scientist is a man. And it just, it's not giving credit where credit is due. Dr. Amina Darwish is the Associate Dean for Religious and Spiritual Life at Stanford University. Dr. Darwish, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you so much. I really, really appreciate you. I appreciate you too. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure getting to talk to you. You've been listening to 51%. A big thanks again to Dr. Amina Darwish, Usman Popal, and Dr. Haifa Yunus for participating in this week's episode. And thanks to you for joining us in this special series. 51% is a national production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. Our executive producer is Dr. Alan Shartok, and our theme is Lolita by the Albany-based artist Girl Blue. To learn more about the show and find episodes new and old, check us out at wamcpodcasts.org. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at 51% Radio. Until next week, I'm your host, Jesse King, 51%. I was every single girl, I was nobody else, I was so sure of myself. I was 15 and a half, he was a hollow laugh. And I lost my cool somewhere along the way At night and on the hallway I had to learn how to look away I lost my cool No electricity Hot rain on the concrete Sweet melting little girl dreams They said, oh, I want a big life Not a house that could have been Said everything I do, I feel farther.